are listening to Lightning Strikes Thrice, a Final Fantasy XIII series game club podcast. This is episode 5, covering chapter 7, and I am your host, Chris Taylor, and with me is... Matt Marcus. This is Graham Marcuson. And uh, I guess I'm Autumn. Yay! I love that energy. Uh, (laughs) You know, I'm not settled on my whole last name situation yet, so... That's fine, you know, whatever, names be names. Wait, I can change my name? I can go by any name I want. Yeah, it totally works, man. You can change a lot of things about yourself, as it turns out. Just gonna say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can. Mm-hmm. So, before we get rolling with our usual, uh, let's see what the data log says, where we left off last time. Saz's son, Dodge, was branded a Sanctum Lassie when he stumbles into the midst of a pulse attack on the Eridi Gorge plant. With the help of the Lassie powers Dodge gained during the incident, the military discovered the Pulse Falci in Bodom, instigating the Purge. In the ensuing violence, Hope lost his mother, and Lightning and Snow witnessed Sarah's transformation into Crystal. The whole series of events that has thrown their lives into chaos and threatens even now to shatter Cocoon's peaceful society can be traced back to Uriday. Had that incident never occurred, could these tragedies have been avoided? Who can say? There's little point lamenting that which cannot be changed. Yet, though the past cannot be changed, it can be forgotten, for a while at least. And so Saz and Vanille make their way to Nautilus, City of Dreams, as storm clouds gather overhead. Meanwhile, Lightning and Hope enter one of the largest cities on Cocoon, as quite another kind of storm approaches. So the chapter opens with a uh, great CGI cutscene of Psycom gearing up and deploying troops while someone named Roche gives a motivational speech about eliminating the Lassie. We then cut to an in-game scene of Lightning and Hope plotting to cut through this military checkpoint to get a train, get it running, and ride it to Eden, the heart of the Sanctum. Hope suggests they sneak under the base through some sewage tunnels he played it as a kid, and we get a little card for Palamporum. Hope still has his grudge against Snow. I gotta say, these tunnels do not look like a place a kid would play. These are like weird floating techno magitech tunnels. It's not really uh, not, what I was envisioning. They're not even tunnels! They're not tunnels! There's a tunnel! <laughs> and it, And it's probably raw sewage, too. Yeah, it's just like floating platforms over a big old lake, underground sewage lake. I used to play in the tunnels next to our robot god. <laughs> yeah, the, the uh, floating, moving platform tunnels with all the angry gelatin monsters. Yeah, and I, I'm sure Hope uh, took uh, some free uh, nutrient slurry for himself while he was down there. Soil and green is uh, Flanators. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> I mean, why do you think they're down here? Ah, uh, well, I mean... They got cute little hats on. That's that's the reason why they're here. But anyway, the enemies we fight here are the core Tranquifex, core Pacifex, and Falco Velocycles. Basically, we have a regular soldier enemy, a different soldier enemy that buffs the Tranquifex specifically. They use Entwater to augment their attacks, and the Pacifex then use Watera as an attack to follow up on that. The Velocycles here are very deadly. Uh, they have a Gatling gun attack that can completely wipe you. Oh my god, dude. It, yeah. 
through protect from full health, just completely dunked on. Right. So you really need to either kill it or stagger it fast enough that it won't be able to get get off a Gatling gun or just hope it flipped a coin and didn't target lightning. Yeah, for real. I, I understand like you can you can skip these fights. You're not necessarily supposed to fight these things right now. But if they're going to give it to you, they shouldn't just be able to one shot you like that. I, I, yeah. I had to do it three times because it hit lightning every time. And then after I finally beat it, Hope says we should just run. I'm like, thanks, Hope. <laughs> I got pretty lucky here because like when I was just rolling around with lightning and hope, I never had a deal with Gatling gun. I think when I ran to Velo Cycle, I must have destroyed it quickly enough or something. Yeah, I know, like, I, I've been fighting everything, so I'm sure I, I fought the Velocycle here, but I don't remember them being a problem until they show up with uh, Hope and uh, Snow en masse later. I mean, it's easier with Snow because he's got, you know, he's a Sentinel, and that's yeah. the way you deal with that type of enemy, is having a Sentinel to, to tank the damage. Maybe with Hope and Lightning, I just, like, switched to Rav Rav and staggered them quickly enough that it wasn't a problem. Right, right. All right. Uh, as with at the beginning of every chapter, our Crystheriums have been expanded. Now, Lightning, her command overall, now has Smite and Quake. Yeah, Quake's still useless. Smite? Ah, uh, shoot. What is Smite? Is that the one where you like uh, you attack an enemy just as it's about to recover from Stagger? Uh, no, that's yeah. Scourge. That's Scourge. Oh. Smite is the mid-air version of Scourge? Yeah. It's oh, okay. Like- slightly really? more specific but it, it's the yeah, yeah smite is smite is like they're about to end a stagger and they're emitter and you kind of like slam them to the ground and do a bunch of damage if you all right time it precisely to make it actually fire off which can be difficult yeah yeah her ravager role now has overwhelm thundar and blizzard just you know just another couple skittles her medical role has asuna and uh roll level note at the end Graham, oh, what? you've been doing these notes for a few chapters now, and I literally just realized you meant Skittles because they're all the same thing, but just different colored. Yeah. Well, they also look like Skittles. They're little orbs. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's just the image I got when I was, like, uh, you know, claiming them. Oh, I got more Skittles. I'm really disappointed now. Also, you collect them and cast magic spells. Yeah, just like real life. <laughs> Much like Skittles. Hope's Crystarium, his Ravager role now has Thendara and Watyra. His Synergist role gets Bar Water and Bar Thunder, and his Medical role gets Cura and Asuna. So, like, you know, good skills. This is a pretty decent Crystarium expansion. Yeah, so it's giving you a, a few more verbs, and, you know, you're going to run into enemies that are going to put status effects on you, so now you can finally get rid of that. The second I saw Isuna on the Gristarium, I'm like, I need that right now, because I know if I don't have it, I'm going to hate myself. Agreed. Yeah, it's like, it's a priority. I'll do Cura MVP in this Gristarium expansion, like, hands down. Yeah, the thing about Cura, it feels like it's only, like, 1.3 cures per person. And because it, it costs two ATB gauges, and you probably only have three, maybe four segments at this point for your characters, it feels a little slow compared to just, you know, dumping four cures, three cures on person. Yeah, it doesn't feel good until the end of this chapter or next chapter. Mm -hmm. Right now, it feels real bad. You're just like, what is happening right now? But once you get all three characters, it's you you gain way more actions than it costs you in terms of heals per action. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, because like 
Uh, I think it's best used when everyone's really low in health and you just want to take everyone just a little bit higher so they don't get one shot by like a lizard or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I usually just kind of let whichever AI is playing the healer right now decide what they're going to do because fuck if I'm going to be the healer. <laughs> I had to have micromanage healing so much in the next chapter and I'll complain about it because the auto battle for healers, not very good. No, no, not the best. Anyway, after kind of our starting area with uh, all the soldier dudes, we just uh, go through these tunnels that Hope knows about and we wind up in the Nutriculture Complex, which uh, as I mentioned before, doesn't look like some kind of sewer tunnel you would play in as a kid. Also, why you're playing in the sewers, kid. Uh, also, doesn't look like a factory. Oh, that's what it is. This is like uh, the food factory uh, run by the Sanctum Falci Carbuncle, and it's just a bunch of floating platforms. This is where we uh, fight all the Flanators. Uh, they're same as the Flans we saw before, but they've got like little ape escape siren hard hats, and their gimmick is basically that they can't heal themselves, but if another enemy is damaged, their uh, little ambulance alert will go off and they'll start healing them. You just kind of have to stagger and overpower one of them and then kill the other. It's a bit troublesome to power through that healing when there's two, but they're not doing too much damage while they're healing, so it's not that big a deal. Yeah, since I'd just been explicitly just dumping all of my materials into lightning right now, these were like completely trivial now, and then absolutely the worst when you fight them as Saz and Vanille. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they, they show up in interesting formations, too, later on. <sighs> so, story-wise, the focus here is on Lightning. She realizes that she pushed Hope down a bad path, which is taking revenge on Snow. And also, she has an epiphany that humans are the Falsi's pets, which strengthens her resolve to kill Eden and essentially give Cocoon to the people instead of letting the Falsies run the show. She also reveals that... After her parents died suddenly, she took on the name Lightning and became emotionally hardened because that's how she coped with the responsibility of leading the household. This area has good character work. The arc here, I think it's well written. The problem is that the pacing is awful. There are like three cutscenes in this area, some of which have only one encounter between them. It just feels like they just took what should have been a character arc that should have happened over a chapter or two, maybe three, and condensed it to about 20 minutes because they just didn't have enough time to really develop the thought or they just ran out of game in which to stretch it out with, which is funny because some of these chapters get real stretched out, this one in particular. But I, for me, these scenes would have had a lot more impact if we could see a more gradual shift in, in Lightning's feelings about this. Because, you know, if you're reading the data logs, it says there that Lightning has doubts about what she she told Snow. But you, if you were not reading the data logs, you would have no idea where these feelings are coming from. Yeah, I mean, I think even if you're not the reading, you're reading the data logs, like, enough of it comes through and kind of like, you know, as subtle as character writing gets in this game. Like, there are some subtler bits of character acting that, you know, like, I think you can see that stuff kind of being hinted at uh if not explicitly stated but it just comes so quick here like this is kind of a theme throughout this chapter this chapter is like a bunch of character arcs happening very quickly and not all of them feel entirely earned uh lightnings is a big kind of offender there because it the stuff that they're doing with her is interesting and good like you know this idea that humans are the falsies pets and lightning resents that and wants to like fight against that that's interesting there's stuff to do there but the way it articulates is just super abrupt and she like 
immediately takes the thought to its most melodramatic extreme, and it comes off as just kind of goofy. Like, all, all of this doesn't quite land, even though, like, on paper, I really like the character arc, but, mm-hmm. you know, they just don't give it the time it needs to breathe. I don't think they could make Final Fantasy thirteen and have it be well-paced, because what you would have to do, right, is your game would either be longer, much longer, to have, like, good character arc pacing, or you'd have less combat, because the combat is either, like, the combat systems either lead to really short encounters or really long encounters, and, like, a combat encounter that's, like, three minutes, right? Way rarer than one that's one minute or five minutes, so you either need to have way less combat, and then you have all of these systems that you never really get to explore, or you have a super long game. I don't think they want to do either, so, like, I don't know how they would solve the character arc problem, because I think it's endemic to, like, the systems of the game. The thing about it, for me, is that these characters are on the run, right? There's a sense of urgency that they're they're running away from, you know, the pressure of Psycom chasing them. You know, they're wanted fugitives, and I think that pressure and that push, you end up in situations where the pacing of the characters just couldn't ever have time to breathe because all they're doing is running. You know, there's no chance to, to catch your breath at all. And so they decided to just layer the plot on top of the macro plot action. And that's where the tension is. I think this chapter has a lot of problems with pacing in that there are moments when, you know, you fought some enemies and then the action completely stops. All of the soldiers disappear for five minutes and then the characters talk for two or three minutes, and then all of a sudden the soldiers show up again. It's very, very strange. Well, even when they have, like, dead times, they don't really take advantage of it. Like, you have the no. entirety of Chapter 6, and Saz and Vanille don't talk to each other at all, except for when they dump the entirety of Saz's backstory on you in one cutscene. Right. Yeah, I think there are, like, endemic pacing problems for this whole game. Like, there's a big meta pacing problem that I think affects both the plot and the gameplay where they just take their sweet time setting anything up like they they take a really long time doling out combat systems to the point where like you know 20 hours in you kind of like have a more or less complete grasp of the combat system and like they're kind of letting you play with it the way it's meant to be played with Mm -hmm. and similarly like the story it's not exactly the same problem but it, it feels similar to me in that the characters have no real motivation for a lot of this, or, well, they have motivation and explicit motivation, but it feels muddled because what is the end game here? What, what is, like, a long-term goal they can reasonably work towards that isn't, you know, just stay alive for a little bit longer? And, like, that's good for, like, you know, a, you know, a dramatic, frantic escape. I don't think you can have a dramatic, frantic es- escape for 20 hours, which is what this game does. Right. I think that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. There is an explicit goal, but yeah, when Lightning first says, yeah, I'm going to go kill Eden, she just does it because she's raging against the machine. Like, there's no, that just kind of comes out of nowhere. And then here, they give her, they give her motivation. She's like, okay, now I really want to kill the Falci, because now I realize how bad the situation is. Right. But in both cases, for me, the kind of endemic problem is how, like, (laughs) how do you do that? It's, it's not even that. It's that, that's the first like plot where we're going to start down the track of doing this. And this is going to be the story of the game. That's like 12 hours into the game, right? That's the first time there's actually a plot other than what's happening with the characters, like the character work and the plot take turns rather than being put together 
like traditional. And I think that's the point that Autumn hit that really stuck with me in terms of the pacing problem is that they're trying to alternate world, the plot and characters, and none of it's like really weaved together very well. And it makes everything feel really rushed no matter what's happening. Yeah. So after we get through the Nutriculture Complex at the end there, uh, Lightning and Hope take an elevator up to a shopping mall-like complex and are immediately surrounded by Psycom soldiers. And at this moment, Snow, who is also conspiring with Fang, jumps in with the Shiva sisters to fight off the uh, soldiers. The cutscene flows right into a large battle with Snow and his Eidolon. They're, they're going for some kind of Scissor Sisters pun here, right? Oh, dude, I even ha- I have that later on down the road where we have a great cutscene minus the part where we have to watch Shiva sh- trip again. That's definitely <laughs> what they're going for. But uh, I like the scene in general, right? They come out of the complex, they see themselves on TV. Like, it's actually, like, pretty high energy, well-directed, which is uh, typically when they have to show action in one of these games previously, it does not work very well. But I also love that when you uh, when you get to control the idol in a battle, it completely fails to look like a viable combat option. You just like donut ink through a horde of dudes on a motorcycle. Yeah, and it, like, and they're all shooting at him with machine guns, and he's a guy who punches things. Like it's it's so a very it's weird. a motorcycle. Like I'm <laughs> not to complain about realism in the game where your motorcycle is two naked ice ladies, but that's not how what would happen if you tried to hit donut through get people on a motorcycle. Yeah, it's got an ice shield. Uh, for, for me, the thing is that I still mechanically I understand very little about the Eidolons. I don't feel like I really understand. Uh, how the gestalt mode attacks are supposed to work and like i think if you dig through the menu there are like descriptions of each attack and kind of like what it does the game will never like give that to you you have to go hunting for it uh so it's really hard to know what the utility of any of these is right that's why i end up mashing the auto battle until i hit the final one but the thing is when i did that here i died on this fight which was really funny because there's a goliath class enemy you know like one of the the flying mech dudes in there and the way you're supposed to kill him is before you hit like the gestalt mode and then do like the final final attacks, you need to get that enemy into stagger status so that it's taking extra damage for like the final kill shot, like the the kill everything. But I accidentally hit triangle too early and I ended up with just snow in that enemy going one on one and snow got destroyed because he can't heal himself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I had to retry this fight like three or four times because I didn't understand that staggering that enemy was even something I could do or was, like, the goal for that section. So I thought it was some kind of really weird, like, unreasonably difficult uh, one-person, like, paradigm-switching battle. Like, I'm supposed to, like, time out swapping to Sentinel and popping a Steel Guard to, you know, win the Battle of Attrition or something, which doesn't work because what happens is when you get this thing low, it starts, uh, like, spamming whatever it's, like, fire sword attack is over and over uh right or no i think it's like got like spark strike or something uh, yeah i think this is a spark one like an electric one yeah 
Uh, but when it gets to low health, it just starts doing that over and over again. So, like, if you're trying to steel guard that, uh, you will never have a window to attack. And if you're not trying to steel guard that, it will eventually just kill you. Uh, I got really close to killing it a couple of times, which is why I thought it was maybe possible. But in the end, I wound up just summoning Shiva a second time and winning that Snow way. doesn't have metaguard, does he? Because not that yet. has to be super impossible without even, like, metaguard to heal a little bit. Yeah, no. Well, that's why I died. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, because you yeah. end up trying to pop like regular ass potions and it just does not work. Yeah, that's like a drop in the ocean of snow's hit points. Yeah. The gotcha here is that, you know, and this is the thing, oh, the other thing that got me when you stagger an enemy with an Eidolon, like when you've done a summon and then the Eidolon goes away, the stagger is reset. Mm-hmm. It, it, it gets reset yep. to zero. And so like, yeah, you really need to get that enemy staggered and just get as much damage done before the Eidolon goes away. And I, yeah, I, I had no idea you could, you could, uh, you would actually be able to resummon them. <laughs> Cause I guess you didn't spend the TP at, the, at first to bring in Shiva in the first place. Yeah. I, I retried the fight right away because I knew that it was one of those fights, you know, snow hadn't been used in a while. So he has all that CP. So I just retried the fight and I got into the menu and upgraded him. So it was easier. Oh brother. Does he have that CP? Yeah. I hate how Snow is still anti-plan. In the cutscene before the fight, he says that heroes don't need plans or some sort of nonsense. It's egregious. Lightning has decided she wants to run a suicide mission against Eden and does not want to drag Hope along to his death. So she leaves him with Snow. Bang is now fighting alongside Lassie and follows Lightning. Player control switches to Snow and Hope. At one point, Hope and Snow get to talking as Hope grills Snow about the possibility of being killed. Snow gives off a lot of flippant answers, not knowing that it's a sensitive subject for Hope. As that scene ends, we see Hope reach for his knife. I was going to make a joke about how picking Snow for the suicide mission is kind of like picking Zaid for the suicide mission, but that feels like too deep a cut. Yeah. Yeah, it was for me. <laughs> You know, this character moment with Snow and Hope is great as all, but all I really care about is the fact that I had 14,000 CP on Snow and I got to <laughs> hold the button for like three minutes and it was so good. Oh man, I just love getting that like uh, that little sound up to like the highest pitch. It just keeps on going. I like this section because while you're playing as Snow wandering around punching things, Hope is just kind of trilling around behind you going like, should I do it? Am I going to do it? I don't know. Should I do oh my, it? That's very comedic. It is so comedic. Snow is like either deaf or the most, the dumbest human that's ever lived. I mean, I'm like, pretty sure that second one is canon. Or both. Yeah. Yeah, I mentioned that like when we first talked about Snow in, in episode one, where it's just he just ignores social cues almost entirely until like the end of this chapter. Well, that's because the obligations he has none of include social obligations. Uh, you're not going to let that go, are you? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> the only rule Snow has is that Snow rules. <laughs> <laughs> that's about right, honestly. Uh, anyway, so uh, at this point, uh, after we run around with Stonehope for a bit, uh, they cut away to a scene with Roche, the director of Psycom's elite forces. He is ordering his troops to eliminate the Lissi with extreme prejudice, and you know, pretty much how we're saying, like, fuck civilians, shoot the civilians, shoot everything, I don't care, fuck you. And he's actually, I believe at this point, he's actually talking to, like, some of the uh, 
Guardian Forces, I think they're called, the non-SICOM regular soldiers that Lightning was a part of. They're there to guard people. They're not in for this whole shooting civilian scheme. Yeah, you can tell this is a video game because it's so unrealistic. The military's <laughs> way into killing civilians and the police not into it at all. How unrealistic. <laughs> oh, that's too real. Waka waka. <laughs> okay, at this point, Lightning is now hanging out with Fang. They are uh, chilling out in the back alley. I-, I believe they get like a call from Hope and Snow at this point, or maybe that's... Oh, on their on. dumb stick phone? <laughs> yes, they're, they're like... <laughs> It's like uh, two router antennas taped together is what it looks like. Yeah, I I was trying to think of a metaphor that wasn't, like, super rude, but I couldn't. Nah, it's fine. I swear a lot. Half my notes have the word fuck in them. It's fine. You're about to make a comparison to a tampon, aren't you? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. I was going to say it probably has a vibrate setting. (laughs) I mean, that's the other angle. That's the other angle. Yeah, it's either way. (laughs) So when we get to take control, uh, Fang has a Commando, Sentinel, and Saboteur. She has a Metaguard instead of Vendetta, which is uh, way more helpful. Her Saboteur skills are Slow and Sloga. And I I love Slow. This is such a powerful spell. It makes such a good noise. Oh, yeah, yeah. Slow and Haste are always my favorite spells in Final Fantasy. Well, they're the most useful. It's so like, good. Slow just generally debilitates an enemy, uh, an enemy's like attacks, and haste is the opposite. Well, they're the most overpowered spells in any video game because if a video game is about two sets of numbers running into each other, the only thing that matters is how many more times can you run your numbers into theirs than they can. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's a classic D and D thing. Actually, economy is the like secretly the most important tactic always. Yep. Right. I find myself not actually leaning on slow that much in this game, just because the effect of it is hard to see directly. Like, in games where you can, like, see the enemy ATB gauge, it becomes a little more obvious, like, oh, this is this is doing something. Uh, in this game, the enemies just kind of do their stuff every now and then, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not clever enough to notice the difference in uh, how much time they're taking. In this area, it's the, are they Orions? I forget the exact uh, classification of the the mechs here. Yeah, the thing you got dunked on by. Yeah, that one. (laughs) Yeah, but like, they get very aggressive at the second half of their life bar. And when you start running into two and three of them at a time, you, you can really feel that pressure. And the game is basically saying, slow these guys down. All right. Uh, what the hell is this? Oh, this is that's the part where they just run through a bunch of soldiers. <laughs> oh, okay. I yeah. forgot we skipped the part where nothing happens for a long time. Yeah, there's a lot of this chapter where you're just kind of uh, running through fighting soldiers and there's lots of civilians around. Uh, we can skip this, even though I have a Nora-based joke right here that I want to <laughs> highlight just for Matt. Snow and his unobligated <laughs> friends. <laughs> I might have to leave that in anyway. <laughs> All right, fine. Uh, bye. <laughs> I will say that uh, I think, like, this gets a little weird because, like, it's kind of neat that there are civilians that are reacting to you running around and stuff. They are weirdly unconcerned with you murdering soldiers in front of them. It's very strange. Oh, yeah. Like, the body count is so high for our party, (laughs) especially by the the end of this episode just alone. Like, I know, like, in the game, when things die, they just kind of poof into, like, you know, particle effects and whatnot. But, like, just imagine this game, except the bodies stayed. Like, yeah. it's horrific. If you think about that version of the game, like, Vile Peak suddenly becomes, like, one of the better smelling places after Lightning and crew get through it. 
Uh, definitely. Yeah, so, uh, as we definitely alluded to, you just fight a lot of guys for a long while. Oh, oh, we, we, should, we should talk about the part where, uh, on the phone call, Hope tries to tell Lightning his decision on what to do about Snow, but, of course, it conveniently cuts out for extra drama. Oh, yeah. God, fuck off. Why is the future so shitty all the time? Phones are always conveniently bad. There's a lot of, like, important conversations conveniently getting cut off for drama, which is, like, that happens everywhere all the time, but it always feels kind of lazy when it happens. The other important thing that happens here is they say they're going to meet up at Hope's house to give us kind of our short-term goal for the rest of this chapter. And hey, it's only been, like, 20 hours, but Snow finally figures out that Hope is upset. (laughs) So, after Hope and Snow continue... Snow finds a crowd of cocoon citizens, and he fears for their safety if the Sanctum arrive because he expects the place to turn into a war zone and therefore would have a lot of civilian casualties. So what he decides to do instead, he decides to scare them off. He grabs one of the soldiers' rifles, and he shoots it up in the air, and he shouts, I'm a pulseless sea, and I'm going to kill all of you, and it scatters the people. There's also a scene where... This little girl drops her her stuffed animal and Hope gives it back and apologizes. And there's this awkward pause as if to say like, oh, yeah, but we're not like that evil. Like we might kill all of you, but we're not going to take your toys. I don't know, it's, it's a weird little moment. But at that point, Hope and Snow fly up to the roof of Palampolum. And they, so they're up on the on the roofs and scaffolding. They definitely didn't even try to make these civilians not like video game characters because they were unable to get over like this waist high girder. <laughs> Yep. To be fair, they did just see Snow, like, shoot some magic. Which I, I figure, like, even if you're trying to angry mob somebody, like, you see them shoot magic, you're like, you know, maybe climbing that thing isn't worth the trouble. Yeah, I I do like this bit, because right when he weaponizes their fear of the Lassie to actually save their lives, it's pretty good. Particularly in the alley, where, like, doesn't one of the guys in the alley have an actual pitchfork? What are you doing with a pitchfork? <laughs> No, he's gonna take it down to uh, he's gonna take it down to Carbuncle and uh, mm. help oh, farm. S- scoop up some of that sweet slurry with my pitchfork. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is like the first smart thing Snow does. Like this is the first thing he does that actually seems inspired. It's the first problem yeah. he solves not by punching it. Yep. Although we, I guess he does. He does punching is involved. He's got grenades. He's got grenades, come on. He's still snow, he's not, you know, something is going to get punched, but it doesn't have to be the only part of the solution. Also, this sequence, this goes on for a while now, and this sequence just is where it absolutely stretches Hope's inability to walk and communicate at the same time with Snow just absolutely stretches the believability of this character arc, like, to the breaking point for me now. He can definitely walk and talk to himself loudly. Oh my god. (laughs) The most disgusting solipsist there's ever been. On route to Hope's home, 
Hope and Snow get talking about family. Hope doesn't want to see his dad. Snow unfolds that he was an orphan. And he wants to raise a family. And generally just wants to help everyone. Hope has another fatalistic breakdown and gives a line, The only hope for Lassie is a quick death. Ugh. Snow and Hope continue down to Felix Heights. Yeah, uh, I like the theme of this part of the game. It's called Will to Fight. It's a really nice, like, electronic theme, really actiony. Feels good. Mm-hmm. Once again, we are treated to Falco Velocycles. Even with Snow's health and his Sentinel role, Gatling Gun can still take it down. Well, I had a much easier time with this because I dumped all of Snow's CP into Sentinel, and like that Sentinel roll level bonus must stack multiplicatively with Protect because, like, even Hope not worried about it anymore for some reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that definitely wasn't the experience I had. Although I probably wasn't using buffs as much as I could. Defensive buffs in me, we don't get along. I, I'm only here for shit that helps me kill stuff faster, which is probably why I kind of had an easier time with Lightning and uh, Hope earlier because. Like, I just could kill the stuff faster. This was actually pretty difficult for me because uh, these Velocycles, you know, the only way Snope would survive is if he was guarding or if he, like, Hope was actively healing him through the attack. Otherwise, it did enough damage to kill him. It took kind of the entire clip, but they would get there eventually. Uh, And I just had a really hard time quickly popping out the Steel Guard. I don't like fiddling with the ability menu much in this game, is what I found. Uh, every time I have to mm-hmm. like scroll through and like kind of pull out something specific, it feels just a tiny bit clunkier than I want it to be. And auto battle doesn't really help you here for this particular situation because it will just throw up four provokes in your queue every single time you swap to Sentinel. That doesn't help you not die. Right. When the Gatling gun is coming. Yeah, the thing I've discovered, like, I don't realize I I was doing this before, because I also didn't like the bit where you'd get four provokes, it would proc on the second one, and then you'd just waste two turns. I don't think the game ever tells you. If you mash the O button, you know, the cancel button, it'll unselect any attacks you haven't used yet, or any moves, and then it'll keep that ATB gauge full, and then it would just keep filling up back to max again. So what I would do is I would, you know, string up four provokes, and if I see the provoke land on the on the velo cycle, I would hit O, cancel the last one or two, and then switch immediately to Steel Guard. And so this was the first part where I really got my feet under me with the Sentinel roll because I was able to, as soon as the Gatling gun message hit, I had just enough time to get those provokes off, cancel the rest of them, and then just immediately put up one Steel Guard. You know, I would go into the menu, hit one Steel Guard, and I would just get it in time to survive the Gatling gun. Like there was a few fights where that was just like, it was a very tight time window to do that. And it felt really satisfying. But yeah, canceling out of attacks like that definitely helps a lot, especially like now that the system is kind of showing it's uh, like they're playing their cards a little more. They're they're kind of like letting you engage with the system more. And there are now reasons why like canceling out of a chain of attacks is useful. That cancel button definitely helps. The problem is that they only tell you about it in one easily forgotten tutorial at the very beginning of the game when you have no reason to want to do it. So by this point, I had forgotten it existed. Mm. Yeah, I didn't start using it till here. And the next chapter also where I wound up with my paradigm stack where lightning was doing medicking sometimes and they will just queue up just completely full of cures 
even if the third cure will leave them missing like two HP, they'll definitely slot in the fourth one. So you wind up hitting triangle a lot to just fire off immediately and then circle to cancel. And you definitely have to micromanage your medics a lot or you just waste tons of action points. The Velo Psycho is around here. They're like they're hard enough, but sometimes they come with allies. There are a few enemy formations that are kind of bad. But if you use the strategies that like we've been talking about, you might be able to survive. In the area, there is a Vidafnir, a weapon for hope. Its ability defense maintenance increases the length of Protect Shell and Veil, which is arguably not that useful. One thing about the weapons in this game is that there's a lot of classes of weapons that just aren't useful. Right, there's always a trade-off between a useful secondary skill or like passive buff and just the raw numbers. Like Right now, the, the weapon I have for Vanille is the Belladonna Wand, it gives you better debuffing at the cost of not having such strong stats. I mean, Hope, you know, his primary situation is being a Ravager in fights where you would want to throw up a lot of defensive buffs. This may be useful, but, you know, I don't have a good metric to decide which one I want to prioritize. And generally speaking, I just like having bigger numbers, so I tend to lean that way. Yeah, uh, for me, the problem winds up being that you're kind of really disincentivized to experiment because, like, the costs... And maybe it, this is also, like, you know, something like a, a corner of the system I don't understand yet. Like, this is not as severe as it seems, but the costs for upgrading anything feel very high. It feels like you sink a lot of materials into upgrading stuff. And if you're trying to have even, like, just a semi-well-rounded, like, pool of mm-hmm. uh, gear, like, like, kind of have all of your characters buffed up a little bit so that you don't wind up in the situation where, oh, I dumped all of my materials into lightning and now I have to play as Saz and Vanille and they have no levels in anything and it sucks. Uh, Like, if you're trying to spread it around at all, Mm -hmm. there are so many playable characters and it's so expensive to upgrade a weapon that you just, like, you look at a new weapon you got and you're like, hmm, maybe maybe that is worth, maybe I could try that, but I already have, like, six levels in this other thing and I'm not spending all those mats again. Right. Yeah, you definitely have this feeling of being incredibly strapped for cash until like chapter nine. And that feeling is very prohibitive. Like I understand that they don't want regular ass monsters to drop credit chips or gill. Right. Because that's quote unquote unrealistic in our game about like human wizards who jump 400 feet. But, uh, when the only enemies you fight for most of the game drop upgrade materials, it makes it seem like you don't want to sell those because they're upgrade materials. But the way to go is absolutely sell every single thing and then just buy sturdy bones and rubber rings. And then you have three level 25 weapons by now. Yeah, like the money economy here is strange. And I've I've talked to um, uh, one of our uh, Slack buddies from the Duckfeed Slack, Phil, who actually I have to give him a, a name drop just because he actually gave us the name of this podcast. His complaint is he couldn't grind for money. And that's half true. You know, in this area, you're going to get credit chips and there's a regular credit chip. And later on, you get the incentive chips and those like you sell those and you get a lot of money. So like in a couple of chapters, I totally forgot. I just earned all the picked up all these chips and I went from having like five, six thousand dollars at this point of the game without spending much money or gill. And it turned into seventy five (laughs) thousand Yeah, right. You can't grind early because that's what I'm saying. It presents things that are really money 
as upgrade materials, even yep. though they're all garbage. Right, well, the chips are, are explicitly not good for upgrades. They're worth yeah. one point, so, like, you're supposed to spend them. But, like, like Vibrant Ooze, not a good upgrade material. I know they, they spent, like, all this time on this thing where it could just be, I hold this button and my money goes down and my weapon XP goes up, and that would be way more intuitive, make it feel like things weren't a real investment, and all you get from money is guilt. Yeah, the only thing you would lose there are some of the descriptions of uh, the items are pretty good. I think like one of the oozes says, like, we have no idea what orifice this came out of. And it's just really funny. <laughs> oh, God. So yeah, hope and still have another conversation. Uh, you know, kind of, kind of along the same beat. Uh, you know, hope kind of interrogates to know about what he would do if his family was taken away. What would you do to the person who was responsible? And Snow kind of tries to again, you know, missing the hints, brushes it off with more of his super optimistic heroismisms. And then a boss shows up, and it's a boss fight. Yeah, I mean, this is another. <laughs> like, I wouldn't call it. A hint. This is like a like shining red siren <laughs> or whatever. Like this is a big like red sign. Like holy shit. <laughs> yeah, this is a fucking flanator going <laughs> wee 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 <laughs> right up in Snow's face, and he just doesn't give a shit. <laughs> we didn't talk about that actually, but the flanators like when they're healing something, they make the siren sound over and over. It's kind of hilarious, but also kind of obnoxious. Yeah, I think the flanators are probably my favorite of the flan types. At least, definitely so far, but probably throughout the entire thing, I would totally get buy a flanator uh, figurine. They're, they're cuties. All the flans are so fucking boring. Oh my god, <laughs> the flanators are the only ones that are not just the most boring enemy you can fight. <laughs> anyway, uh, this boss is the uh, Ushmal Subjugator. That's a good boss name. This is a. Uh, I think this is our first like airborne boss. Yep. You can't really do melee attacks against it. You have to use magic. It's got a fire-based napalm attack. It's got, like, a big, like, melee swing attack called Tail Hammer that does a bunch of damage and tosses enemies into the air. It has high chain resistance, and after you kind of hit it a bit, it uses an ability called Overdrive, which gives itself bravery, which increases its physical damage, but also inflicts D-Protect and D-Shell on itself and reduces its chain resistance even further. This is a pretty good fight, but it's uh, mostly uh, unremarkable. But I do, I just put a note here saying that Snow has this one voice line where he doesn't say anything important, but just the delivery of him saying, I'm the one you want when hope gets really low is very good. Like Snow voice acting in general, very good. Mm-hmm. I never noticed that. Oh, well. Yeah, bar fire reduced Napalm's damage to nothing. Like I'm talking single digits. Wow. After its overdrive, Ushmal went down in one stagger. He's not a terribly hard boss. So all I needed was one stagger and it was over.
Well, after that incredibly short one stagger boss fight, uh, Snow and Hope have a break. Uh, Hope's obviously still not over it, so he interrogates Snow further and asks what the plan is. Uh, Snow, of course, uh, doesn't worry about it and is very hopeful about just, you know, we'll do the thing and everything will be fine. And then, uh, Funny Hope that hits Snow is the hopeful one and Hope is the not hopeful one. Eh. Oh, <laughs> I don't have a joke to follow up your joke. Yeah, I tried. video games are art now. <laughs> well, fuck off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when Hope hits Snow with hard-heading questions like what would he do if someone gets killed, Snow just completely is no longer happy and is very, like, perturbed by the idea of someone getting killed, even though he's punched, like, 80 guys to death so far. Tensions escalate and uh, Hope attacks Snow, telling him that he's the son of Nora and uh, the one that Snow told to save her son. And just before Hope kills Snow, they are shot by rockets. That's a good sentence. <laughs> and they both tumble down to the streets of Palampolum. It's pretty weird how quickly Snow's demeanor drops when Hope starts getting real on him. I would have preferred more build-up to the scene, maybe a few hints that Snow struggles with feelings of guilt. He just like he has like a breakdown. It's very melodramatic, and it's it switches like a light Excuse switch. Excuse you. I think you're forgetting that ugh, Snow has no emotional obligations. Uh, or rules or authority. Yeah. I mean several characters do change on a drop of a hat like that. I mean, we've seen it with Lightning earlier this chapter, but you you know, you see it with Vanille, like it, it is sort of this weird binary emotional state thing. Yeah, it's it's like, like we said before, it's kind of endemic to this chapter and also this section of the game more broadly. It happens a lot. Uh, I think this, compared to Lightning's kind of change of heart, I think this works a lot better, it largely is. because the whole thing with Snow and Hope has been like built up throughout this entire game up to this point. And then also because like the immediate fallout of this makes more sense and is easier to follow. Like, like when Lightning has like her revelation, it's not clear what that changes about like her character or her goal or what she's trying to do. In this case, it's it's you know when we look back around to Snow and Hope, you know it's like pretty clear that there's like a character shift here that is meaningful, and you kind of see it in action. Yeah, that's more like the next scene with Hope and Snow that uh, does that for me. But I see what you mean. All right, Lightning and Fang are in the alleyways, laying low. Fang explains some backstory, specifically that she and Vanille came out of their crystal sleep, having forgotten everything about how they got there in the first place. This leads into a flashback to day five. And on day five, we see Fang and Vanille in uh, the Uriday Gorge plant. And Fang is trying to convince Vanille to run off ahead without her. So this is the point where they get separated. Fang basically like pushes Vanille onto an elevator, busts the door, and says, I'm going to hold off the uh, the soldiers that are coming after us. And so that's how they ended up getting separated in chapter on day five. I can't remember if it's this scene or a later scene, but there's a scene where uh, Fang is talking to Lightning and talking about, you know, she, she says, like, you know, oh, when I when I woke up from crystal stasis, I couldn't remember completing my focus. And then she says it like five more times in different ways, and it gets to be a bit much. Yeah. So in this scene, right, they basically say that if they don't do their focus, there's going to be more Lassie. And, like, that's crucial information for me, because that's the first time that, like, if you're a real nihilist about it, right, you're either going to turn into Crystal for basically ever, as far as you know, which is basically like dying, 
or turn into a Seath, which is basically like dying. So finally, we have an actual motivation for Lissy to do anything, which is to prevent someone else from becoming a Lissy. Yeah, it's kind of disappointing that they don't, like, lean into that. Yeah, that's, like, a good plot point you could do stuff with. It's worth mentioning, I think, just that, I don't think they say it aloud, but if you look into the Codex at this point, there's a mention in there that when Fang and Vanille originally completed their focus and went into Crystal Stasis, that was not, like, recent, that was, like, hundreds of years ago. Which, up to this point, we hadn't known for sure that people who became Crystals came out at all. And this is presumably why, because, like... Sure, you'll come out of being a crystal eventually, but, like, everybody and everything you ever knew will be dead and gone, so still a pretty raw deal for Elysee. Yeah, yeah, it is. So we cut back to the present, and Fang is telling Lightning that Sarah could eventually wake up from her crystal sleep, and Fang decides to apologize for having instigated the scenario that turned Sarah into a Lissie. Then Lightning slaps her in the face. And then we go on to fight a whole lot of dudes. Uh, mm-hmm. I had a very hard time with this section. Fang doesn't have Ravager. And uh, Saboteur doesn't really build meter. It just no. keeps it from falling as fast. I wound up having to use Lightning as Ravager. And with just a Gladius, right, you don't do a lot of damage. And the behemoth took, like, long enough that I only got three stars on it, and I think it has, like, an eight-minute completion time. Mm-hmm. As a Ravager, you do have, like, the, I guess, like, your Spellblade abilities. Yeah. Classic Final Fantasy, but, and those do scale off of strength. But then I'd have to touch a menu. Yeah, the, the for some reason, the, the uh, auto battle Bunyan seems to really like having characters alternate between yeah. melee and magic, even when their one stat is way stronger than the other. Uh, I told you, Matt! Uh, i'll eat crow on this one but yeah it definitely i didn't have such a hard time with it i found that between fang and lightning i kind of had enough raw damage output that stuff wasn't getting staggered before it died outright Mm -hmm. so kind of what i did was like i would like do calm rav for like the first half of their health bar if it was a big enemy and then i would switch to commando commando and just kind of finish them off with the kind of damage buff of having an extra commando. Yeah, the double com, uh, they call it double trouble. I didn't use it that much in this particular chapter. And interestingly enough, it feels a little weird when you I did start using it a lot or having two commandos because it's really only most effective against a single enemy because I, I find that when I'm doing double commando, at least two commandos. Yeah, because they won't attack the same one if there's more than one. Yeah, and it's not like... And so, like, what is the fucking point? Yeah, it's a little it's a little frustrating, but uh, it's interesting that they, they gave you that option as a default when you're given the Fang and Lightning Party. Yeah, I, I think the idea would probably be that, like, when you've got, like, a, a big crowd of kind of weak enemies, like, you would have two commandos, and they're both just kind of, like run in and blitz different areas and, right. you know, yeah. kind of take them all down like that, which doesn't really happen in this section. No. <laughs> Alright, the Psycom Bombardier has a deadly bazooka ability that can launch a heroes into the air. Uh, yeah, if you make sure to target them first, they won't get that off. They, they take a while to do it. I kept forgetting to target them first because I'm dumb. I wish well, I pro- forgot this chapter and not next chapter where they absolutely decimate your entire party. Yeah, the yeah. problem, they're hard to, if, especially the way the camera keeps moving around and the fact that 
all the SICOM, you know, whenever you see a bunch of SICOM soldiers, they're all wearing the same uniform. They don't look different enough at at a glance, and you kind of have to keep an eye on the names from the auto battle. But if you're like me and you just mash, you're just constantly mashing X, you might not realize that you weren't targeting the most important enemy in the field. Sometimes some of them are girls, but that doesn't happen until later. Yeah, that's those. <laughs> oh man, those are those are some tough enemies. Worst design NA. It's pretty bad. It looks very Soul Calibur, actually. Anyway, we'll complain about it later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lightning is worried about the others, but Fang reassures her that if they were captured, there would be an announcement. According to Fang, the people of Grand Pulse fear Cocoon, the same way the Cocoon fears the people of Pulse. Fang also explains that the Lissi brands gauge how much time Alyssi has before falling into a seat. Falling into a seat? Fang not caring about the fate of Pulse, only Vanille, is very similar to Lightning's relationship with Cocoon and her sister Sarah. Uh, I think in general, so far as we know, because I haven't been reading the data log, because there are so many, Fang and Lightning are just extremely similar characters, except that Fang reacts to external stimuli like a human being. <laughs> which makes lightning much less likable in comparison. That's true. It's funny because Fang's personality was originally lightning's personality. Oh, okay. Oh yeah. Then they decided to make her a robot. So she'd be cloud. Yeah. Yeah. No, she was originally supposed to be sassy and have a bit of sex appeal and, you know, talk back and whatnot, but they decided it wasn't good for the character they wanted to make. So they gave those characteristics to Fang instead, which is why I like, I like Fang as a character because you know, we mentioned she gets slapped in the face by lightning and she, you know, more or less no sells it. <laughs> oh, we had a well-written character. That's not the character we wanted to make. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, it makes them interesting foils in that way. The, the whole slapping Fang in, in the face thing. I thought it was a weird reversion for lightning because I thought that, you know, she started to soften. You know, she, this is a process of her softening with hope. You know, that started in chapter five and is going to run through the rest of this chapter of that little arc. And yet her scene with Fang here seems like it's a complete reversion to her original real hard ass personality. So it's a little bit inconsistent for me. I, I kind of like that whole little exchange because like. Fang is just kind of shitty about it in a way that amuses me, like she definitely knows. So she's sort of like, oh, yeah, you hit me. Yeah, good job. You feel better now, you piece mm-hmm. of shit? <laughs> not, it's not quite that, but it, it feels kind of like that, and I, I it, it's funny. I, I enjoy it. Oh, yeah. guys, um, in this cutscene, we get the Seath City line from Fang. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm still waiting for a Seath o'clock. <laughs> I'm sure it's in there. Well, I'm sure li- I, I might have missed it. It's got to be. They're literally wearing Seath clocks. That's true. I'm trying to like come up with some kind of clever Seath City fun, but, uh, but I... Uh, yeah, the best I can do is see Frigid City, and that's not very good. Mm, Bowie. <laughs> Come on down to Sea City where you do our task or your life is shitty. <laughs> that's all I got. I'm sorry. Cut this out. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Saying cut this out is a sh- sure way to ensure a thing stays in a podcast. <laughs> a thousand percent. <laughs> oh, should we mention about the Lodestar Behemoth? This is the first time we have a behemoth stand up. It's a guy we, you fight. It's up to you, Graham. Well, I mean, 
there was this fight with, uh, I think, Lightning and Fang, where he fight an Orion and a Lodestar Behemoth, and because of the slow chaining, uh, it was really difficult. Because you only have a Saboteur and Rav in your party. You don't have, like, uh, two Ravs or two command. Okay, you do have two Commandos, but, like, you don't have two Ravs. It's really challenging. Right, and, like, the Behemoth will, like, I believe at a certain point in its health, it'll stand up, which, like, the first time that happened to me, I was like, oh, shit. And yeah, then, I think this is the point where it happens, and that's a trick that all the behemoths here on after will use, and it's right. a deadly trick. Right, because once it stands up, it'll shrug off any status effects that you put on it, like slow, usually, and you can't land them again the behemoth gets really aggressive and starts just attacking. And so you just kind of have to DPS race it to death. Yeah. The fact that you can't hit it with any CCs means that your saboteur won't do anything, which means not only are they not helping meter maintenance, they're also just actively letting it drain. Right. So you should just stick to comrav. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, after this, we, uh, loop back around to snow and hope, uh, Hope is unconscious. Snow is kind of like uh, battered and bruised. He's kind of like having a real tough time of it. Uh, they've just kind of like gotten blown off a rooftop and fallen down to the bottom of an alleyway. But Snow, you know, he's the hero, so he kind of grits his teeth and he hoists Hope up onto his back and uh, wanders off with him. There's a lot of shots here where Hope's position on Snow's back seems very precarious. Like, there's a shot where they are climbing up a ladder. I'm just like, Hope is going to fucking fall off your back, man. You got to reposition that kid. Uh, Yeah, the theme of this scene, Atonement, really makes it. I really like the theme. Yeah, the thing that's weird for me about that is that when we go back again to Lightning and Fang, because Snow and Hope aren't really in fighting condition right now, and they're just kind of like wandering through some apartments, murdering some soldiers, and that theme is still playing, and it doesn't fit as well for that bit. <laughs> no... Uh, I forgot. About I don't think that. they're murdering. I don't think like the, I don't think the heroes are murdering people when they beat them in battle. I think they're just like I don't know, knocking them unconscious. They're KOing them. They'll be okay with their swords. With their swords. exactly and their hand grenades. They, they can handle it. Yeah, their, their sword that is also a gun. Their guns. Their giant lightning god horse robot definitely knocked unconscious. Not <laughs> atomized by light magic. I, I punched him in the head until he stopped moving. I'm a hero. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. That's just the feeling I get. Fair enough. And, uh, yeah, after a bit of mostly just fighting with uh, Lightning and Fang, we go back around to uh, Snow and Hope. Hope uh, wakes up. They have a talk. Snow says that uh, he saved Hope because both Lightning and Nora told him to. Uh, he admits that he was running away by putting off apologizing until he could find some way to make it right, and then he uh, gives Hope the knife back. This scene is an unqualified success for me, right? Like, Snow and Hope are believable. This is both, like, the high point of their character arcs. And the dialogue is actually well-written and not very clunky, so they both come off as actual people here. Mm -hmm. Do we want to talk about Knife Chat? Knife Chat! Knife Chat! I like Knife Chat. (laughs) So there's this thing with the knife through the whole game, right? Hope has opened and looked at the knife while building his justification for his vendetta against Snow and then laying out his plan, which is really just Shiv Snow. The knife has been basically acted like this physical storage for all of his anger over his mother's death. 
And then he maps that into his hatred for Snow. And at the end of the scene, right, he opens the knife and tells Snow he was so angry and needed to blame someone but knew it wouldn't help. And he's basically slowly taking out all of this thing that he put into his, like, anger focus in this knife and ends the speech with the symbolic closing of the knife. Then after all of this, he decides that Snow is worth protecting. And I think that's really great. And works really well for me, especially when later you find out with like a uh, later on you get lightning and snow and she says that Hope decided he didn't need the knife anymore. Like, that's really great for me. Yeah. Lightning still needs it, though. She's angry. The thing that ruins this scene for me is that this entire huge emotional scene is happening while a teenage boy rides a grown man piggyback. Why? Why do you hate joy? <laughs> you say ruins, I say enhances. You know, that's just the uh, magic of Final Fantasy. It's just like, and the, the camera's like cutting around just to make it, like, to give Hope his, like, you know, space to emote. It makes sense. It makes sense, Matt. <sighs> and then he just gets up and walks after that. He doesn't even need to be carried at, at that point. He just, he was away. That, that's his... That's been his problem. Hope is fully <laughs> incapable of both processing emotions and walking at the same time. Ah. That's the only way the scene works. <laughs> All right. Well, at this point, the Ushmal subjugator arrives again and KOs Snow. At this point, Hope stands up on his own. He sees Snow is knocked out and he says, always the hero. You want to die? You can't. I won't let you. And he jumps into part two of this fight by himself and it doesn't go very well for him i didn't realize that this was a forced battle at first because it lasted pretty long for me it lasted a couple of minutes but yeah, you you can keep hope alive a good while if you are in medic right yeah. yeah it's not a it's not balanced in a way that makes it feel like you're supposed to just get wrecked so i mean maybe that gives it more emotional weight if you realize that you could make some progress but you still start to stumble but you lose the battle, and at that point, Lightning and Fang show up, and now we have a full three-person party again. When they show up, it does this uh, little uh, like display trigger. Like they show up, and it actually like in the middle of the cutscene pops up the party change, like you know, mm-hmm. character slotted into your party menu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you spent half a chapter four looking at it. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, it just kind of pops up in the middle of the cutscene, and then instead of having a big battle transition, it just like. You know, the camera just moves into kind of fight mode and it's cool. It's a slightly different, more kind of cinematic, dramatic presentation, kind of bringing you into a fight mm-hmm. than you normally get. Yep. And it definitely builds up a bit of hype. It's like, oh, the the, the cavalry's here. You know, it's a big hero mo- moment. It's just, it's nice. I like it. It's a, it's a good little cinematic trick. Yeah. The, the back half of this chapter is all hype. It's great. Mm-hmm. Like it definitely, it definitely rides that wave all the way through. Well, at this point, you could also reset the menu if you want to prepare your uh, paradigms. You don't have to, but you could certainly do that. The uh, the subjugator's attacks in part two aren't too bad, but they can get a little bit of overwhelming if the player is not careful and doesn't make good use of Hope's buffs. So what it'll do at a certain point is that it would start using an attack called Photon Blaster, targeting a single person over and over again. And this is really just a signal saying, Put Fang as a sentinel. It has a super attack that can do a whole lot of damage, but if you have Fang in sentinel mode, it's very manageable. The game is tipping you off that you're going to want to be in that setup before that attack comes, which I think is is pretty good. You know, it's not in your face in the way that some of these other encounters handle this sort of trying to tell you what to do. 
and also it has a lot of HP, so you're probably going to need two or three staggers to to kill it. Agreed. I hadn't upgraded anyone's weapons so far, so the subjugator was really troublesome. Uh, keeping up with HP levels compared to other Final Fantasy, this guy has almost 400,000 HP. He is more than the entirety of Final Fantasy VI's final boss, and you know that's just just something I find fascinating. Anyway, after a battle, Hope gives Lightning the knife back, and he gets a hug from Lightning. She says, you'll be okay, I'll keep you safe. It's a really sweet moment. Like, it shows that Lightning is capable of, like, human compassion. Yeah, no, this this scene's very well acted. There are several scenes in here that the, I guess it's probably mo-capped, but it, it feels a lot more subtle. The body language is a lot more subtle, and I think it really sells it here particularly. Yeah. at the S-Time residence, Hope's father, Bartholomew, is deeply saddened by the loss of Nora. Hope is set on leaving, but father insists that, Lassie or not, Hope is at home. Uh, this scene does definitely does not work for me, because Hope still tries to be mad at his dad, and you have no idea why, because Bartholomew only has three lines, and they are very badly written and voice acted. Yeah, Hope's dad is like... A dad? a good dad throughout all of this. It makes the whole thing where Hope hates his dad. Like, like it, it feels like, oh, yeah, no reason to hate his daddy. He was just, like, you know, being a shitty teenager or whatever. And yeah, like, I think that might be what, what they're going for. I just don't buy it. Yeah, it doesn't, like, if that's what they're going for, they don't really sell it. And also, I don't, I don't like that very much because I feel like when kids hate their parents, they usually have a reason. I mean, maybe that's just me. Yeah, also, Hope just got over, like, this thing where... I think somebody else killed my mom, but is still like a huge, like emotionally underdeveloped baby about everything else. I, he's 13. I know, but 15 it, or 14. Yeah. No, like that's still pretty young. I guess. I, I think the data log does explicitly say that he's being an angsty teen towards his dad. Like it doesn't even the data log just says he's he just hates his dad because, you know. OK, sure. <laughs> it yeah, because it's Freud. it's unnecessary and not great. Yeah, because like him being mad at his dad adds nothing to any of the plot or any of the character stuff. Nope, it just right? doesn't go anywhere. Right, because he he's mad at his dad, and then his dad turns around and says, "I'm proud of you, son." And then he and he's like, "No, right, am I getting ahead of myself?" Yeah, <laughs> all right, you're I'm- getting ahead of yourself because Bartholomew gets real woke real fast. <laughs> yes, he does. The player is given control of Fang, who can walk around and look at stuff. Like, it's just a little interactive moment where you can just, like, check things and get some, like, little flavor. When the player is ready to continue, they must check the television. The news report says that the purge is continuing. And that all of the people that came in contact with the Lassie will be purged. Yeah, I like this little scene with Fang. It does more to tell you where hope is coming from more than almost anything else we've seen so far. 
And it's very rare that this game lets you take a moment to, you know, be in a place like this and to sort of learn things. And Fang also has a commentary responses to these items as well. Although it's really funny. Yeah, like it's a stand. <laughs> Big revelations. Well, there, yeah, there's one it's... where it's like, oh, this is an expensive, uh, expensive version of this, this home device. So like you can tell like they're made of money. Like they're he's. <laughs> yeah, you can kind of like look around and investigate stuff. It winds up not being very rewarding to do that because. No. Nope. You only learn like they're kind of saying the same two or three things over and over. And it's all stuff that you can do it like, oh, this nice looking house is nice. Oh, Hope doesn't like his dad very much, it looks like. I appreciate that they're trying to do a thing where you empathize with the characters because you're both getting a bit of a break. There are a decent number of things to look at, but none of them are the none of the text associated with them is very interesting. There's not enough variety. So really, all you do is look at one picture frame and then see that snow is sleeping and lightning is watching TV standing up because, yeah, that's what she does. I would say that the one portrait you do see, the family portrait, gets shown in the cutscene when you move the plot forward anyway. So that is redundant, yeah. which is a little frustrating. Yeah. But like, if they wrote this better, I would have definitely... No, it could have been great. It could have been, been great. Yeah. yeah Flushed it out a little bit, kind of give you something more to do here. So uh, after you, you know, look at all this superfluous flavor text... Uh, you go and investigate the TV, and then you get a scene where uh, Lightning is by Snow's side uh, when he wakes up. Lightning admits that she hates herself for not believing Sarah when she told her she was Lassie, and she apologizes to Snow because he's the one who did believe her. Snow jokingly asks Lightning if he could know her real name, but Lightning says that Sarah will tell him when she wakes up from her crystal sleep. This is like the only time that like Lightning really worked for me as a character, because here, she's being the best adult in the game. She like... R- unpacks all of her emotional problems really quickly in a realistic way to the person who like was most affected by her like off emotional state. And then they get over it really quickly, which is great. And it also comes off as somewhat realistic. Also, I got to say there's a bit at the beginning of the scene where the camera luxuriates on snow's unnecessarily well-modeled nipple. And it's the most detailed part of his body. And the camera just hangs on it for a little while. Weirds me out. Somebody worked for a long time on that nipple. Like they wanted it to be seen. A Japanese salary man didn't go to his daughter's birthday party because he was crunching overtime on the nipples. It's like when you open up Overwatch and Hanzo is on the main menu. Yeah. <laughs> I I do like I like the scene with with Snow and Lightning specifically like again the the body language but also it kind of closes the loop on the dramatic irony that the knife that was a gift from Sarah ended up almost being used to kill Snow. You know, I I think they wrapped that up really nicely. I I remembered it being not as good as it ended up being in this scene. Yeah, that's like definitely one of the easiest, like easily the best parts of the game. After we hang out with Lightning and Snow, the gang and Bartholomew have a scene out in the living room. Uh, he sees that Snow brought Hope home and absolves him over Nora's death. So Snow gets his like moment of resolution here. And after that, they get to talking and decide what to do next. And I like this immediate redemption for Snow's dad. He just immediately absolves Snow of all of his sins, like, child, you are forgiven, and then just gets so fucking woke about how the government is lying about the Lassie in, like, three seconds. 
He goes from fuck Lilithy to fuck the government in no time at all. Yeah, this is also kind of the first time in the game where somebody sits down and is like, okay, let's like actually, you know, we made a point earlier about how Snow is anti-plan. Everyone else in this game is also anti-plan because nobody has had a plan at any point in this entire game. And we kind of alluded to this earlier, but like this is definitely the part of the game where nobody having a plan for anything was starting to be a bit much. And so it was nice that somebody was finally sitting down saying, hey, let's talk about this and come up with a plan. And then it doesn't happen because, of course, it doesn't. Suddenly the lights go out and smoke grenades fall into the home. Psycom soldiers crash through the windows and the player gets to fight a few battles in the house. And at this point, the lights are out and the soldiers don't know where you are, which is kind of funny. So they're just kind of standing around patrolling this little area. Where could they be in this three room home? Right. Like I actually stopped. I like I put the controller down. See what how long to see if they noticed me. And then I just walked calmly over to the save point saved and then fight all, fought all the dudes. Yeah, the the break-in scene is generally pretty sick and I like that Hope steps up to the plate immediately, but it's very funny because in the middle of the cutscene, like you can see the corner in the scene before CGI happens, then you're looking at the same corner and suddenly there's a magical treasure sphere there, which <laughs> I guess is slightly better than having it in the CGI scene like it's in all of the in-game scenes, but right. still like this would have been another time like at the very beginning of this chapter, we went from a cutscene straight into a battle, and that was really good. Why didn't we do that again here? Why did we have to then control the getting it's into because the because the scenes part? were so long and you didn't have an opportunity to save earlier is what it was. Yes, I guess. The, the effect is a bit like the home invasion scene in John Wick if all of the mooks in John Wick were Metal Gear guards, even more so than they are. Yeah, for real. <laughs> also, one of the magical treasure spheres that just kind of shows up in the house once the cops show up as the brawler's wristband which is a like plus 50 strength which is nice yeah that's a good one to grab mm-hmm. good ass accessory to upgrade mm-hmm. sanctum surrounds the home and snow tries to negotiate you know waves the white flag he puts out his jacket it gets shot up with a bunch of bullets and somehow it doesn't hit his hand or his arm a million bullets a million all bullets. of the bullets it's like stormtrooper level not being able to hit things he starts talking to the soldiers trying to remind them that they may be pulseless sea, but they have no ambition to harm Cocoon because they were born here, they were raised here, Cocoon is their home. And you can sense that the uh, soldiers are starting to waver a bit in their resolve. But then we have Lieutenant Colonel Yag Roche steps forward again. Yag. Yag. And he rebuts Snow. He sympathizes with him, but he says he still must hunt Lassie and purge the citizens when necessary for the greater good to keep Cocoon safe. Someone then throws a smoke grenade, and the soldiers panic. One of the soldiers ends up shooting Roche. <laughs> he yells, who told you to open fire, as though a smoke grenade is shooting a weapon. And his, his death scene is like 30 seconds of him slow falling dramatically, which is mm-hmm. incredibly dramatic for a character we literally just met in the last two hours. And then in two chapters, it becomes even stranger. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's why I mean, they set up this guy and then it looks like they try to sell it. Like he just gets punked real hard. <laughs> he just gets, yeah, he's a good mid tier villain. Yeah. They set him up like he's a good mid game villain. And then nope, nope, apparently not. But after that, uh, we start a battle with a giant flying sky tank.
Yeah, the Havoc Sky Tank is actually five enemies. The main body of 400,000 HP, plus four artillery add-ons that the player can attack. On the whole, this elaborate enemy will be relentless with physical attacks. The player cannot stagger any part of the Sky Tank because every part has an unreachable chain limit, and their chain resistance is near perfect. The Sky Tank is completely immune to debuffs. Uh, the tactic for this thing is to destroy the artillery components. It's hard to stack damage on them, but they only have about 10,000 HP, and once they're destroyed, they stop attacking you for one thing, but also it does 100,000 HP damage to the main body. After you destroy all four of the add-ons, you kind of have to you know, finish off the main body. It's still hard to stack damage onto the Sky Tank, but once it goes down to about 8,000 HP, it'll open up and start using its main cannon. The, the cannon is like a, a real serious, like, like it'll mess you up if it goes off, but it takes a really long time to go off, and the Sky Tank is more vulnerable to being staggered when the cannon is open, so you can kind of damage race and finish it off before it has time to go. That's not quite how this fight played out for me, because I didn't pay any attention at all and missed that there were four other things to target, so I just kind of spent ten minutes trying to damage the main body and feeling like, man, this really is taking a long... I, I'm sure there's some kind of, like, mid-battle turn that's going to happen because this is not going anywhere. Yeah, I was at a similar vote, but I got really tunnel-visioned, and I got into a really good rhythm where it was very sustainable, and I wound up killing three-quarters of the thing before I noticed the other targets, and it took 25 minutes to finish the boss fight, and I got a one-star ranking. <laughs> The second time I played this game, I forgot about the extra components and I tried to do something similar. Whereas, like, when the first time I played it, I guess I, like, realized right away, oh, this guy has other parts of his body. Go attack them. See what happens. Yeah. Uh, I ended up spending most of this fight with Fang in the Sentinel role. Yeah, um, I didn't use Sentinel a whole lot, and I had a lot of trouble. Having Fang in Sentinel mode makes the battle far more manageable. Yeah, the you know you have these two turrets and you have two missile you know guys shooting missile clusters, and the missile clusters hits everybody and it hits everybody for a lot of damage. But if you have Fang in the Sentinel role, she won't just tank every missile, but just the passive defensive buff is so strong that it went from saying if I got a couple missile clusters all at once, then I would have to immediately start healing real fast. When I had a Sentinel in there. I could take two or three or four rounds before I had to do anything about it. So this is, again, just highlighting how useful Sentinel is. I did not have a paradigm that was Comrav Sen, Ooh. which you really won in this fight. When I was yep. making my paradigms, I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't need that. Like, you know, uh, I want to like, I'm going to be, you know, all attack or all defense and, you know, that's going to, you know, I, I don't need to do both at the same time. It, you kind of need to do both at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I actually really like this scene because just like the, the visuals of like a helicopter shooting missiles at the party and then shooting like magic back at them. It's kind of like that perfect mesh of like fantasy and like Western action films that I think Final Fantasy tries to tackle like a lot throughout the whole franchise. It actually, it's it's similar to like superhero films. Like you could imagine that kind of scene happening in a superhero film. It's pretty epic, not to use a an abused term, but you know the stakes here are very high and the energy is very high, and this fight is 
the biggest fight we've had just in terms of scale, and it feels really good. It's pretty epic. Mm-hmm. Fortnite Battle Royale mode. Womp womp. I, I was gonna, like, there was gonna be more elaborate joke there, but I got distracted by something. <laughs> no worries. Uh, after uh, defeating the Havoc Sky Tank, another one shows up, and then that one gets shot down by a third Sky Tank piloted by Rigdia. We saw him earlier, but he I don't even think his name is, like, mentioned. He's just the no, guy that... No, not until later. He's the guy with the bad hair and the bad outfit. And the bad accent. He looks like a jerky squall. He looks like a, a douchey squall lineheart. <laughs> he, he's got a real uh, cowboy thing going. Yeah, he's the yeah. he's the dude who we saw hanging out with Fang. Yeah, at this point, I'm still very surprised that entire regiment of the Sanctum military is going rogue, and Psycom seems to ignore it completely to go after the Lissy. Yeah, you know. We read this. We read the data logs last time this came up, and it's right, still and like nobody says anything. It is unbelievable that they are somehow attached to the government. Yeah, they're just like they're real like Deus Ex dudes with sky ships. Yeah, this it's is real like, ridiculous. When we kind of come back uh, and uh, you know are hanging out with uh, these guys later, I actually opened up the data log to try and figure out like who are these people and why do they exist and why does the Sanctum allow them to exist and. uh I did not get an answer. Okay, the the piece of the Sanctum that is just basically park rangers has, like, more detailed backstory than these guys who just come in to save the day all the time. Like, and there's no build-up to it. There isn't much backstory. I mean, they basically just say that Sid decided one day that he didn't want to be ruled by Falci and then started not following the rules. I mean, I guess presumably the Purge would be, like, the straw that broke the camel's back for him, and that's why they ended up going rogue. But still, like, nobody talks about it. Like, you're not even hearing on the news that, oh, by the way, a whole part of the military is now helping the Pulseless Sea who are on the run. Like, that could have been, like, a really important thing for people to know. Yeah. Fucking whatever. I mean, I understand, like, there's news suppression because, you know, we're in a dystopian utopia. Dystopian. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, finally, brings us to the end of a very long chapter. Does anybody have any closing thoughts on chapter eight? Chapter seven. Yeah, sure. Chapter seven. Why did I write eight here? For me, this chapter is long as hell, but the play in it is so good, especially in the back half. And it does so much heavy lifting, like laying it out, just how many arcs are covered here or complete here. They basically they complete lightning's arc or at least her mini arc from the beginning of the game. It ties up Hope's arc, and it also starts Fang's arc, which is, she talks about, oh, I don't remember what it was like and what happened. So, like, trying to figure out what it was that happened for her when she was a lassie back hundreds of years, that's basically a good chunk of the rest of the game's plot, or at least a side part of the story. Yeah. It's very tight. Uh, yeah, as I kind of talked about at the beginning, I think the the tightness of it, like like how quickly they resolve all of those arcs and like how compact together, like the, it's a very strange pacing. Like, like, you know, we, we talk about the pacing a lot towards the beginning, but mm-hmm. it's a little bit much. Like I, I like in general, I, I like what the characters do. Like, like I like the actual, the content of the character arcs. Some of the ways those actually articulate feel a little weird. And a lot of that has to do with this like grind of a chapter where it's like, uh, 
chewing through all of these character arcs very fast and then also just chewing through a bunch of plot stuff and also just interminable fighting. My primary thought for this chapter was I am so sick and fucking tired of just putting CP into unlocking Quake. It feels like that's the only thing I unlocked all chapter <laughs> for every role for every character. Uh, Quake is useless. I've never used Quake. I've used it. I, you know what? I used Quake one time, but I can't not unlock it because it's on the tree. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. It's, it's there. You have to unlock it. Well, if it's in yeah. the way. Anyway, like, um, my thoughts on this chapter, you know, I I like it. Like, it's, you know, a lot of urban environments and a lot of, like, uh, tense action. It's a, I really dig it. Well... If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us using the contact form on our website, lightningstrikesthrice.com. And if you want to catch us on Twitter, we are there at lightxthrice, and our Facebook page is also facebook.com slash lightxthrice. In terms of plugs, plugs, uh, you can listen to my other podcast, Magmar Sucks. Uh, do you guys have anything else you want to share with the listeners? Nothing new for me. Still doing the podcast. That's about it. All right, uh, I'm still doing my one Let's Play on New Threat, a gameplay mod for Final Fantasy VII. I've been a little busy with my life right now, but the updates are still coming out slowly, so uh, check it out. It's a really fun mod. It really affirms Final Fantasy VII for me, so it's uh, really fulfilling to play. Autumn, do you have anything you want to plug? Not really. I uh, I don't do too much. I, uh, I have a Tumblr where I occasionally post... Uh, kind of as some short writing I do. I'm kind of trying to get into that groove and, uh, you know, do more of that. But it, I, I kind of realizing that, like, I sort of, where I put all my writing is also my personal blog, so it's, like, a bit of writing and then mostly reblogs of cute girls and furries because I am that specific kind of gay. So, mm-hmm. that, that is at uh, weirdautumn.tumblr.com. Uh, it's uh, all one word. Uh, weird is spelled with a Y because I really needed to shave the, that uh, single letter off of the length of the URL. And uh, I'm going to try to, like, spin off a separate writing Tumblr that can just be writing. So you don't have to just look at a bunch of a uh, bunch of furries. We'll put that in the show notes, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of if you split it off or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh, that's all for now. Uh, catch you next time. Goodbye. See you around. Ciao. See ya.